0: Good morning, everyone. This is your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the November 5th, 2013 uh, edition of Ask a Leader. Hope everyone's Halloween, Day of the Dead, and Diwali all went off well without a hitch. Today, we have Harvey Liss and Carl Meritz, two distinguished local activists to take up what's happening in, in, with lightning-like speed at and around the Great Park. Indoors and outdoors, in Orange County's arguably... Okay, then next is uh, afterward is Dr. Malcolm Warner of the Lagoon Art Museum. He'll, he'll amaze us with a heady program, both indoors and outdoors, in Orange County's arguably most beautiful city. Psst! This includes getting our toes into some sand hall. But before we head into a short break, I'd like to say a word or five about why we want so much to have your support during this fall fun drive. Did I say number 949-UCI-KUCI? That's 949-824-5824. We do have someone at the phones taking your pledge. We are way short of our $12,000, folks. It's really important. If you've been enjoying what I've been enjoying presenting to you, this is your moment to match the grant, you've liked what you've been hearing, whether it's the content and public affairs or the alternative music, then please speak with your checkbook with calling 949-824-5824 or going online and pledge whatever you can start with. $20 gets that license plate mount or there is the $35 to get you a shirt or it gets you a CD Or uh, it gets you one of the uh, premiums uh, from some restaurants, concert tickets, and that kind of thing. We go all the way up to $100, and you can get several of those premiums I mentioned. Plus, you can co-host a show with me. Pick your guests, pick your content, pick your brain, and and I'll help you pair the music to make it a really lovely public affairs hosting experience for you. 949-824-5824. We'll be back right after a brief break with Carl and Harvey. Les beton that's hit the pavement. We're going to hit the pavement over where the Great Park has it in spades. Welcome back to the show. My guests today are Harvey Liss and Carl Maritz, both local activists for good government, both retired engineers. So we've got Logistics, We've got uh, activism. It's all that they have in spades. Why is it a good idea to have these guys on the show? Because we are witnessing a very unorthodox land planning process underway, which is taking place at an unprecedented rapid pace. Harvey Liss is a product of Bronx, New York. He earned his Bachelor of Civil Engineering degree from the Cooper Union, for the advancement of science and art in New York City and completed his Ph.D. in Applied Mechanics at what is now the Polytechnic Institute of New York University. Once uh, a professor at Stevens Institute in Technology at Hoboken, Harvey became later a project engineer here in Irvine for the village of Woodbridge. Harvey, was, who has lived in Woodbridge since 1976, was involved in the effort to convert the El Toro Marine Corps Air Station, into what we now know as the Orange County Great Park. His continued political activity sets his sights on seeing the fulfillment of the original vision. Carl Maritz hails from St. Louis and graduated from the University of Missouri in chemical engineering. He moved to Irvine in 1979. Throughout and after his engineering career at Floridaniel, Carl remains in the thick of movement and partisan politics contributing to the Orange County State Democratic Party and the local and regional United Nations Associations. Carl once ran in the state assembly race in what was then the 70th district that you might recognize as slightly the 74th currently. So, here to assess the process of building the Orange County Great Park and its surrounding properties to bring out the points that are not getting the scrutiny in the other local media are two men whose collective person hours of attending meetings and city council sessions would number into the tens of thousands. That's why I welcome veteran professionals and activists Harvey Liss and Carl Miss, who joined me. Maritz, I'm sorry, Carl, and, and Studio A on Ask a Leader. Good morning, gentlemen.
1: Good morning, morning, Claudia.
0: Listen to that. That was a duet. I can feel it. That constructive production there. We rehearsed that. Oh, you, you d- must have, Harvey. Well, I'd like to open today's talk by taking stock of how the places that you both have lived around the world shape your appreciation of the importance of this legacy building opportunity before you, before us. Harvey, your years in France, and Carl, your time spent in the Netherlands, Japan, England, among other places, all help you to attest to the importance of thoughtful planning and policy consideration on the part of both policymakers and the residents they serve. Can you talk to what that collective experience uh, means to you that you bring to the great park planning oversight process? Let's start with Harvey Liss.
1: Well, more important than my time in France really was my time spent in New York City because I spent a great deal of time at Central Park. It was a central part of my life, which is probably why it was called Central Park. And, And I was always amazed at the vast number of activities that happened whenever I went to Central Park I took my bicycle there I traveled around the 15 mile circuit or so many 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 weekends I saw people juggling this was quite some time ago so some of the stuff people do now that some of the kids do now didn't exist then but there was just an enormous amount of activity and where I grew up in the Bronx there were very very few t- trees in fact, there were no trees on my street at all. the only place I could really see a a, a real park was to go down to Central Park and it was amazing right in the middle of New York City that we could have such such a place to uh, to see nature and to experience uh, life with rocks and stones and dirt, all of that neat stuff, worms, birds.
0: The open-ended, the everybody-can-come accessibility aesthetic. Yes. Wow. And uh, you can even uh, break in with uh, also with some of the your experience in France. Carl, can you talk to the same point with your experience in all the cities you've lived in. You might even, Maybe there's something in St. Louis that reminds you.
2: Yeah, I, I think, frankly, the biggest influence on, uh, on parks in my life was growing up in St. Louis and being in close proximity to Forest Park. Uh, the acreage of Forest Park is almost identical to what's in the uh, Great Park acreage at the present time. And I would like to point out, I, I bicycled all over Forest Park uh, while I lived in St. Louis, and it was a fantastic place to bicycle with Wonderful streets, uh, hills. It had forests, of course, because it was named for Forest Park. And it had a world-class art museum, a world-class zoo. It didn't have uh, the planetarium when I was there, but that was added uh, probably about 40 years ago after I'd left. Uh, It has the Muni Opera, which is probably the outstanding open-air theater venue uh, in the summer. And it brought all of the Broadway shows there and all of the top actors and actresses. We're there. Um, I did a little research on St. Louis uh, Forest Park. Would you? Tell us. And uh, I found out that it was actually established in 1876. Okay. One interesting thing about it is the funding source for it was a countywide property tax.
0: Interesting. One of
2: the things I notice about the Great Park is we don't have a very stable funding source.
0: Yes, it changed up. But we can talk about sort of the the genealogy of the leadership structure, too. Um, but we're, um, yeah. meanwhile, but you're, you're making the point of this this institution that you knew and love, and love still, is a, was a long unfolding of putting Absolutely. pieces together Absolutely. to a workable part.
2: And even by the time of the St. Louis World's Fair, which was held in Forest Park in 1904, the park was far from being built out. The zoo had only moved in a few years earlier. And uh, a lot of the attractions that are there today, like the, the art museum and that, uh, have been evolving over the years. So it's not something that happens overnight. A right. lot of work has happened in that park over, well over the last hundred years.
0: And that's the same thing that you would say, Harvey, about the Olmsted plan that was then carried out with the Central Park. These things are thoughtful, deliberative, time-honored institutions being built. And I mean, people are going to hear this refrain from me, but that's really what's going on.
1: Yes, and they're intended to serve the public interest rather than a private or personal interest.
0: Okay, all right. So I just want to mention up front today, as we're talking about the unfolding of the Great Park process, is that in July of 2012, I first covered this process now underway, and I sought multiple voices to discuss the next phases of the Great Park. But only Emil Haddad, the CEO of Five Points, that is the developer for the parcels around the park, and uh, uh, someone with a a particularly new vision of what could be um, presented in the actual Great Park acreage itself. Now, um, so he had his moment, and there were no other voices. And I really thought at this point, because of an important city council session on November 12th, that's a week from today, November 12th at 5 p.m., the city council is going to be rapidly moving forward with some policy decisions that are quite uh, monu- quite uh, essential, quite monumental. So since the pace has rapidly picked up, the stakes are high, and so we're dealing with so many acres, and when those are largely unimproved acres, it's really an opportunity to get it right the first time and as you've already heard we talked about how large municipal and regional recreational amenities such as the great park and it's the what's the name of the um the one in St. Louis the
2: St. Louis Forest Park
0: the forest park that these were decades in in the making so um let's go now you're both you were um Harvey a civil engineer involved in the design of the subdivision many know it as Woodbridge Why is it what happens in the ground important to you?
1: What's in the ground is uh, not generally visible, and it's extremely important. And uh, you can't build anything on top of the ground unless there's something uh, under the ground. (laughs) And what's under the ground, of course, are the utilities. Electrical power, storm drainage, sewerage, communications, all of that stuff that's uh, typically hidden from view right now.
0: And that's well we can talk about that in terms of the the prospective plan presented by the five points that uh is projected on a particular budget that might raise some eyebrows with how much that those that kind of infrastructure that you're talking about that is the foundation of developments that, uh, that those how much more they figure into a price than what we're seeing with the you were gonna say.
1: Yes, what I'd really like to say is that what we're seeing now with the current uh turmoil in the City Council and the Planning Commission really started in November of 2012. And it's a clear case of where votes matter, and votes matter hugely. And what we're about to see is perhaps the overturning of a 20-year effort to have a terrific public park, and instead turn it into something that caters solely to private interests. And the reason this changed in November 2012 is because the per- Formerly progressive majority on the Irvine City Council was converted into a—I'll call it—a regressive majority. And uh, although it's supposed to be a uh, city council, is supposed to be nonpartisan, we have an extremely partisan city council. Probably something similar to the House of Representatives.
0: Well, what what happened with that composition is that there, without any delay, there were very pivotal decisions that were made. And that was in restructuring the, the chair, the, that is the steering leadership of the Great Park itself. And so uh, it pared down from the, the original, found, uh, cha- um, I want to call it the board. The original board of the Great Park rep- had representatives considering other municipalities. That was, it was a regionally uh, considered uh, ba- group Of around Orange County, that included, as I said, other municipalities, and so the the Irvine City Council in January pared the board down to simply five members. That meant the five council members of the the city of of Irvine. So that would reshape the whole uh, constituency and, and the vision of and the decisions for making the great park putting it together so that was that was very main uh, monumental as well as there were there were financial considerations that changed too um that uh, we want to consider today i don't know if either one of you wanted to bring that well into the original
1: you. the original concept for the great park corporation board was to have not just representatives that represented uh, all of orange county but also various other disciplines so the, for example there was The former commander of the Marine Base to assure that the historic nature of the base was retained in the future plans. There was an environmentalist, a developer, a philanthropist to make sure that uh, what was done made, made sense from a developer point of view. And all of those guys were immediately eliminated in the very first meeting of the new regressive city council in January. And it's been downhill ever since, trying to really destroy everything that was done during the previous 12 years.
2: Car. I'd like to just second what uh,
0: what Harvey's been what just Harvey
2: just said, and I also wanted to add that one of the things that's uh, been overlooked is that the train station, the Irvine train station, is adjacent to the Great Park, and we have a great opportunity to expand public transportation and bring in people from all over the county.
0: The Amtrak and the Metrolink. So that's, that's exactly right. And from and, uh, around the state and around the country, and we, we as well could, as the uh, region. We
2: could greatly reduce, and I think that was in the plan. To minimize the amount of parking that would be inside the park and use shuttles to have people park off site or come by train or public transportation like a bus and then shuttle into the park. And I'm not even sure if that's even being considered at this point. I, mean, I looked at what see, what I've seen in the planning is there's going to be quite a few parking lots in, uh, inside.
0: Har- Harvey, did you yes. to address that?
1: Uh, as far as I know, the parking lots are going to be to support the vast number of people that will be coming to this. Uh, these uh, internationally uh, uh, to be internationally acclaimed sports venues, so t- turning the Great Park, that's supposed to serve Orange County, into a uh, a sports venue in which international tournaments presumably will be held there. In fact, uh, Five Point Communities is building a hotel on their site, presumably to house all of these folks that will be coming from around the, the country to participate in. These uh, soccer tournaments, tennis. I mean, there'll be something like twenty-four soccer fields and fourteen tennis courts. Really professional grade is what was intended for, which is unlikely to really serve Orange County.
0: Okay, uh, we're we're going to talk about. It. We've shifted away from that. We're t- we're talking about a plan that we haven't specifically. Um, Uh, labeled and set up here. Uh, For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader this morning, my guests are Harvey Liss and Carl Maritz, retired engineers and local activists for Good Government, weighing in on the matters of Irvine's and arguably Orange County's Great Park and the surrounding development here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and in all the drafting rooms and town hall corridors around the world on KUCI.org. And we're talking about now, not so much the development around the park, but now it's in a very, uh, I would say, a, a very rapid maneuver here that the Five Point Communities has presented to the council what their vision, and it's a different vision. We're talking about that. We're talking about there's a new uh, a range, a design for additional parking, a golf course that was not previously con- contemplated by Kenny Smith's design firm, which we, we've paid out lot, uh, quite a bit 35 of money. 35000000 million, isn't it, Harvey? Th- to, to, just to, to Ken Smith is about $5 million, or is it more than that? So, but the overall
2: planning process was 30 $35 million. But so, that
1: included a lot of plans, drawings, by the And,
0: and so th- then the, the, all that planning that went on up until perhaps about last maybe summer, fall, then all that was put aside, and so all of a sudden – Last Tuesday in the city council was a new plan, but this one is generated by Five Point. So we're looking at a different constituency. We're not looking at a planning process that citizens around the county had contributed their views toward, but we're looking at a developer-hatched a, developer, a hatched plan that can, uh, has put down a golf course, additional parking. Now we're looking at multiple sports complexes that are fee-based, um, so, uh, used uh, entities and uh, an idea of not commuting to but commuting around the park, which m- makes for a different kind of uh, transportation mode and makes for a different kind of a land use and I, I I would like for for both of you to s- to talk about why the five point is so interested in presenting their own schematic. I think I want. I haven't seen it in the media, and I I want for you two to to give us some insight about why Five Point has this project. They're they're offering upfront. It turns out to, it's more like one hundred and forty thousand dollars. They say it's one hundred and seven one hundred seventy three million, but it's really one hundred forty million because uh, there's a thirty million dollar contribution of the city, but. For $140 million of their money, they say, we are developing a park for you. But t- talk to us, Harvey. You've seen this process unfold over the years. What's so different? What is the vision for the Five Point? Why are they interested in what they've presented to the city?
1: Well, obviously, what Five Point is interested in doing is selling their houses. And they're not really interested in a 30-year or 40-year plan to develop the park. They want something now so that they can show their perspective House buyers that there's something that they can go to, but even more importantly, we shouldn't forget that Five Point Communities is not giving the 140 or 170 million dollars to the city to build a park. They're going to build it themselves and have full control of what happens there. They're not even required to build what they're showing us now. Not only will they have full control over building what's there, but they will operate what's there as well, which means they can make it into a totally commercial enterprise, and that on a public park. They're acquiring a ground lease as part of their deal.
0: For, uh, the, for the – till til 2023.
1: Uh, that's, that's correct. About, On okay. which they have full control to build and operate whatever it is that they want without any participation of the city or the county or anyone else. It will be complete, to, completely to serve their own private interest to sell the houses and maybe develop a lot of revenue for the hotel that they're going to build. So that, that hotel fits together with having this commercial sports complex to have international tournaments.
0: OK, Carl, what, well, give you my, a chance my, to say.
2: Uh, the observation I wanted to make is in line with what Harvey said. But the way I also look at it is that uh, Five Points right now is going to get, what, about 400 and some acres out of the 1,400 acres that are presently in the Great Park, which is a very nice size for a park. It would be one of the biggest regional parks in the United States uh, in an urban area. Uh, I but, think it's
0: actually over like six hundred and eighty some. Oh, it,
2: it could be that much. The the number I the, there's so many numbers floating around that's, right that's now. Th- I'm Figgly. I i do not even know if five if, uh, five point communities has even given us a good number. But my point is, when you're trading land for money like this, what you're doing is you're like you're like a starving man who cuts off his own leg so he has some nourishment. You can't keep doing that because you, you're going to die. And what's going to happen, just like Harvey said, this, is, this thing is going to disappear into something that was never intended to be when we actually got control of it and uh, stopped the uh, international airport from being built.
0: And, and Harvey was using his uh, civil engineering know-how to address the, the expense of properly developing infrastructure that supports whatever amenity you have above ground. And what we we heard in the last week's session in the city council was, if you average the 683 acres uh, with the 173 million dollars uh, amount that the Five Point Development Company was proposing was the the funds that they were going to use toward making these improvements, it averages out to a sum like around 200,000. 200, I'm sorry, 200,000 dollars per acre of development. When, as Larry Agron was saying that the amount per acre that was necessary to improve the, the Bill uh, Baker facility and others around Irvine is really more like a million dollars per acre. So
1: Yes, even for the part of the Great Park that has already been built at 200 and some odd acres, it was averaging about a million dollars.
0: So we're, we've got to have all citizens on, all residents on deck to watch the process next week, next Tuesday, November 12, at... 5 p.m. to watch the process and weigh in with what you think is important for this opportunity, the juncture we're at, at building this lifetime-only opportunity, this uh, great park. And, Carl, you were going to add some more um, insight here.
2: Well, what I was, was was going to say is so many people that live here in Southern California, like me, are from the Midwest or from the East, And they're used to seeing green parks, and certainly Forest Park in St. Louis for most of the year was green. Now, Forest Park didn't need to do much watering. No. So in the summer, maybe you'd get some dry grass in a lot of the locations. But here in California, if you go to the Great Park, this is what California looked like basically uh, before we got into irrigation and basically when it was being uh, settled by the Spaniards. So what you're seeing is dry bunch grass. And people don't like that. What they want to see is green, and uh, it costs a lot of money to turn that park green. Uh, and, and that's of one reasons. of the reasons that it's still in the shape it's in, because we really have not, to date, had that good of a funding process. It has not been a steady funding process, because it's based on uh, Lennar or Five Points or whatever, whatever reincarnation we have of Correct. the company that's developing it, uh, developing the housing portion of it. Uh, the commercial part of it, they haven't really come. Uh, they haven't really been able to to properly fund the development.
0: So, and I want to because we don't have a lot of time left. I want to uh, put out that there are many moving parts and many aspects of what is being reviewed and voted on. That um, there, in play here is the location of the last high school that will be built in Irvine Unified School District, and it's very problematic that location because the current Proposal with the school board's contrib their input and five points uh, input or a sort of passive uh, aggressive input. I'm I'm sorry to say, folks, that, that there is a the, the location is adjacent to a toxic landfill, and then about a thousand feet further away is the music jail, which will eventually accommodate seventy hundred. 7,800, 7, beds. And so the other location, which is more inside, not the periphery, where, uh, the site A that um, is, I was just describing for the high school, but there is an alternative location that is in the south and west corner of, away from part of the Great Park, but it's just a small section, and a parcel inside the already approved development order for Five Point. That location is a bit more central uh, to that neighborhood and uh, away much more, considerably further away from those uh, noxious activities both from the landfill and from the the the, the regional jail so uh, that there's the siting of the high school that's very important then there is the the decision on the development order itself and i'm going to try to quickly wrap this up and then there are there is the the vote on who has the next makes the next move? Who's a vision of the great park? It's all it all could happen all on next Tuesday night. The vote, Carl.
2: Please come and express your feelings about this runaway train to develop the great park. Well,
0: we have to watch out for call to action. Uh, FCC frowns on that, but we hope that you will be able to participate in the in observing and contributing your views at the Irvine City Council next Tuesday, November, next Tuesday, November 12th. And I just want to mention that the uh, Irvine City Council at ci.irvine.ca.us is the website. You can look up the agenda. I know, Harvey, you wanted to also say as we're wrapping up something. Yes, and
1: you have to show up at uh, 5 p.m. in order to experience the whole proceedings. Regarding the high school, the very first action that must really happen is to get the high school moved from the site A, which is between the uh, music jail and the toxic waste dump, I'll call it what it really is, not just a landfill, and move it to something more sensible, which is right adjacent to the developed part of the Great Park, so we can have joint-use facilities. The high school can use the tennis courts that are there and uh, everything else in the park.
0: So thank you so much, gentlemen. That's Harvey Liss and Carl Meritz, who are talking the high stakes that's going to be up for consideration Rapidly now, the process is happening, un, as I keep saying, at unprecedented, uh, rapidly rate. So I want uh, to thank you both, these veteran political activists, these engineers who know how things are put together, who know how institutions look and feel and work when put together with the vision and the transparency and the oversight that uh, we'd like to see uh, interjected still in the process here in the Orange County Great Park Harvey Liss, Carl Meritz, thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us, Claudia.
0: Well, thank you. We'll bring on, though, in the second half, Malcolm Wardner, Executive Director of the Laguna Art Museum here on Ask Leader. Thanks for staying tuned. Thank you, for everybody, for joining us and this part of Ask a Leader. Welcome back. My next guest is Dr. Malcolm Warner, Executive Director of Laguna Art Museum, this post which he assumed in January 2012. Prior to that, he was the Kimball Art Museum, Fort Worth, Texas, and the Yale Center for British Art, New Haven, and the San Diego Museum of Art. He completed his undergraduate and Ph. degrees at the Courtold, Kort- Uh Courtold, Institute of Art at the University of London. He's published his published work covers European art, and he's curated exhibitions at the National Gallery of Art in D.C., at Yale University, the Huntington Library in San Marino, the Museo Thyssen Bornemisza. Uh, I never, I just said Thyssen there in Madrid, and also at the Kimball there in uh, in Fort Worth. It's a plate. It's a full plate. He's serving up at the Laguna Beach Art Museum this very week and beyond, about which we shall talk today. Welcome, Malcolm Warner, to Ask a Leader.
3: Thanks for having me on your show. very happy to be here.
0: It's good you're here. Let's talk about what is currently on exhibit about the natural world that you're setting us in a particular mood. There's first Adam Silverman, Clay and Space. That's open now. All the the exhibits that we're talking about, they're open now, and most of them go past the New Year. So there's plenty of opportunity for the fall and right through the holidays. So uh, opening with Adam Silverman, Clay and Space, he's in the middle of some very interesting projects around the country. It's good that we can get a glimpse at his technique and his textures.
3: Yeah, all our um, shows at the moment at the museum are, are um, on the theme of nature, and Adam Silverman. He's a he's a Los Angeles potter, and he takes a lot of his inspiration from natural forms. You know the shapes of his pots, and particularly these re- really fascinating crusty surfaces that he gets on them. They're they're partly inspired by things like uh, barnacles, and um, even um, the, like the the craters on the moon and planets and things. He he draws on all kinds of. Um, imagery from nature to as, an, as his um, sort of starting point when he he creates his pots. And um, one of the exciting things for me about Adam's work is that um, it's not just uh, kind of, when he does a show, it's not uh, just a, a lineup of one pot after another that he's made. It's uh, he, he conceives a whole sequence of different installations of them. Yes. And in the museum, you know, he's um he's created for example some um, kiln like brick structures that he uh, exhibits some of the pots in so it's uh, it's it's uh, the whole exhibition is like one big work of art in itself
0: it it is indeed and i and you're allowed with some of the plexiglass arrangements for people to uh, view underneath, around, and all that. And you and you can, that allows you also to get up close. That you're not worried about tipping anything over, and you want to get up close to see that the texture. You can imagine the this first and the second uh, firings and how the chemicals interacted to leave these lovely stippled um, in high in sharp relief in a way um, the. Um, the, the, the ceramics that are in there. And I, I want to say to uh, uh, Mr. Warner that there are uh, there were patrons when I was there last weekend that uh, of all ages that their eyes were popping out. <laughs> they were looking uh, uh, out oh, throughout the gallery. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So we yeah, ha- it's
3: the, pottery is a form of art that goes back um, twenty or thirty thousand years, but somehow um, this artist adam silverman has has turned it into something very contemporary too so that's, that's another great thing about him is that he seems to be both um, respectful of the great tradition of um, ceramic art going back through the ages, but there's something very uh, uh, up to the minute about his work too. Okay.
0: Exactly, exactly. Mm. So that's through uh, January nineteenth, folks, that you can see Adam Silverman. But he will be back. He'll be there's We'll talk about um, in the latter portion of the interview about the the many pieces starting from Thursday through Sunday. So we'll talk about that in a bit. The next I would want to bring up is the sea change with Tanya Aguiniga. Aguiniga, mm-hmm. her blue yeah. belt forest, and and that's going on through February ninth. She's created a a very whimsical setting. How did you find her and place her work in this themed exhibition?
3: Uh, well, um, Tanya was very f- Tanya's work was very familiar to our curator of contemporary art, Grace Cook Anderson. So um, Grace was the one who talent spotted uh, Tanya, and we um, we signed her up to make an installation especially for us in a particular space within the museum. Um, and um, she really uh, um, rose to the occasion. She, her, um, her art involves transforming, you know, quite e- everyday things sometimes. She uses, like, yarn and uh, all kinds of um, textiles, but also, like, gl- glue from glue guns and things, that, all kinds of unexpected things. But she, she's got this incredible um, flair for... Transforming them into the likeness of natural objects, she's she's created whole forests in um, some of her installations. But for us, what she did was to study the undersea life off Laguna Beach, uh, all the the corals and the the kelp and so on, and she's made a, a perfect um, sort of um, um, likeness of, of of them in in our gallery space. It's almost hard to convey it without, you know, to someone who hasn't seen it, but oh, you have to see it. It's a complete it. environment,
0: <laughs> right? Right. You sort of walk through a kelp bed, and yes. then there are these uh, undersea these, but they say the benthic community. That's what the science called. the benthic community. The, uh, the the coral and all, and the the pebbles, the line. It's it's really it's what they string and thread and cotton and cloth and all yeah. all that um, dangling and mounding around there. So it's uh and there it's uh, it's an often a kind of a a nice kind of cozy, protected kind of cove like uh, gallery there, so you really you put the museum to uh through its paces with arranging the best possible a uh, setting for each of the uh, artists
3: yeah and you're, you're um in tonya 's piece you're uh, you 're even allowed to uh, to touch as long as you don't do any damage and uh, so kids kids love it they because they're, it is it does seem to invite you to touch the uh, the coral just to to feel what the textures like and feel something about what it's made of, you know, and you can, you can sit in there too. We encourage people to take photographs of each other, which they do a lot um, in that, in this amazing setting. So, well, yeah, it's been a very, very uh, successful and um, uh, popular show for us.
0: Well, that's uh, that's worth re- repeating. That uh, I re- remember since the "An Okay to Touch" exhibit at San Pedro, easily fifteen years ago. I've been wanting to know when we get our kinesthetic yayas off so we, we can do that <laughs> with the uh, with Tanya's exhibit. That's good to know. I don't. I'm not sure it's mm-hmm. posted there uh, that people are uh, allowed to do that, but it's uh, that's even better that because some people I know intimately. Their kinesthetic experience of many things is the only way they f- fully fathom uh, a, a particular uh, installation. So uh, you're mm. you're doing us a great favor to give us that opportunity. Well, then we have Richard Kraft's expose, and that is two. That's a total two very different media presented at the Lagoon Art Museum. And Richard Kraft puts the viewer to two different tasks. And uh, he's he's what he said there were reasons for the locals that. Uh, that he collected in the, well, I want to find out, the two of them, there's the kind of graphic uh, collage work, and then there are, uh, it is a film installation of numerous panels uh, down below at the Lagoon Art Museum. Uh, Could you talk to how um, you selected those in the scheme of things?
3: Well, uh, uh, Richard Craft, sorry, is part of um, a series of exhibitions we've done of uh, emerging artists, um, also curated by Grace Cook Anderson, our contemporary curator. And um, um, Richard is we we felt was um, just at the the right moment in his career for a museum show, and we wanted to show both uh, of the the main kind of types of work that he does. Right, he does he makes. these very surrealistic um, collages um, that have something of the look of um, comic books or something, with, with all kinds of strange imagery all um, mashed together in them. Um, they're they're a pretty r- um, rich <laughs> diet of images. Actually, they're really um, quite quite fascinating in their complexity and, and you know not easy to to uh, understand, frankly. But re- they really repay a lot of um, study and and intense looking
0: they do they but do for,
3: yeah but for me the, uh, the, the more exciting part of the exhibition was his video work we, um, oh before we gave him, uh, before
0: hmm? Malcolm Warren before you yes? go there that I I, I say that uh, there's no spoiler alert needed but accompanying that particular part of the installation are other artists interpretations of Kraft's work and I think that was nicely done that you you not oh, only yes. bring that together but it's giving a tip of the hat to what Richard Kraft has done in yeah. working with that particular let's say demographic and that's the end of that so um but let's go then but into his film installation please what you were ta- starting mm-hmm. to talk about about?
3: Yeah, well, he's taken um, this space uh, on the lower level of the museum where we've had video shows before, but he's, um, he's really gone to town with uh, 10 different video um, screens um, all arranged all around the room. So you're completely immersed in his, his world. Um, he's made films um, in different parts of India, but also other parts of the world. And he's um, juxtaposed them these 10 different ever-changing images on the walls, um, they they kind of seem to interact one with another. And often the theme that emerges is um, a contrast or a a comparing contrast anyway between, um, you know, an urban environment and a natural one. So uh, you get, for example, a, a whole crowd of um, birds um, flying across the sky or um, cranes in a lake or something, you know, I mean cranes like the birds' cranes. And... Um, that will um, be lined up next to a, an immensely crowded, um, bustling street in India, and you make this comparison between human life and animal life. So that kind of thing is going on all the time in them. But just they're just knocked down uh, gorgeous, all of them. They're so beautifully filmed. Um, Richard wanted to um, have the, the space painted white instead of the usual black, which is You know, black for video exhibitions. Usually, museums and galleries they paint they paint the room black, and Uh then they'll have screens so that the the images really pop against the blackness. But Richard tried this experiment of of showing them in a white room, and it's amazing how um, much of an impression that you're you're in a bright you're bathed in this bright um, light. Uh, everywhere you go in the in the room, it's uh, it's a total daylight like environment
0: and dark furniture to, to to slouch in.
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> yes, right. Bean bags. That's
0: right.
3: <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, you're encouraged to spend some time in there because there is uh, there's so much to enjoy going on around you in that um, in that room. You're surrounded by video, and we're we're um we're actually this Friday we're having um, um a concert of Indian music in there to go with the Indian scenes that pop up. In the oh, videos, okay. and um, that should be a, um, a great thing. We're calling it surround art and sound because it's uh, it's surround sound and surround art. It's, it's even more of a complete, um, like synesthetic experience to be in there with these. Um, classical Indian musicians that we're performing. That's uh, that's at 8 o'clock this Friday.
0: Okay, we're gonna, we'll are gonna we talk about that whole lineup. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest in this part of Ask a Leader is Malcolm Warner. He's the executive director of the Laguna, Arch, Laguna Art M- Museum, and he is talking about the exhibit uh, around which the nature theme uh, he, uh, he has. And we're talking about, um, let's see, we've covered all of the artists now, so let's... Uh, uh, well, quickly, I'll just say there's also the permanent collection. It's on going at about the same time for anybody who wants to duck for a moment the contemporary taste. But um, So we'll start with the lineup for this week. It's just absolutely rich, everyone. I'm so solicitous to say this, um, that the, um, the first Thursday's Art Walk is going to be your first excuse to go there. And so uh, from 6 to 9, that's going on on November 7th. So you can pop in. Uh, then on also that same evening, my guest now, Malcolm Warner, the executive director, will be, ha- it's called Another Conversation with Malcolm Warner. You'll be talking to what points at that evening? At, uh, at uh, um, I'd have, let's see, from 7 to 8 p.m. on Thursday. Yes, yes. And yeah, you-
3: I'm giving a talk about to try and set the scene for this um, long weekend of um, celebrations of different kinds to do with um, art and nature, you know, the way... Artists have been inspired by nature. So I'm going to try and set the scene with a talk about um, um, artists who have worked with nature in one way or another through the ages, right from, I, I think the first uh, image I'm going to be showing is, is Stonehenge in England from 3000 BC. You know, so <laughs> it's, I've set myself quite a big uh, range, and it goes right up to uh, like James Turrell in the contemporary light and space artist. But I, I wanted to just try and sketch out... Um, Um, and emphasize the the sheer variety of different ways that artists have interacted with nature. It's not just landscape painting. It's, um, you know, land art and creating monuments and um, scientific illustrations and still life. And, um, you know, it goes on and on, the the many different forms in which this encounter between artists and nature has played out over the ages.
0: Tall Order, you're going to do that in only one hour. I hope you allow yourself to go over (laughs) a little bit, Malcolm Orner. So... So and you've, you've already mentioned then on the next night, Surround Art and Sound, that's from 8 to 9.30, as you mentioned, November 8th, there at the Lagoon Art Museum, so that you'll be putting, uh, you've selected one of the ethnicities of the settings. Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. there's the Midwest and all that. But imagine, yes, the Nebraska set to Indian music. I think they're, they're waiting. They're yeah. hungry for that. And so um, then the the next contribution or the well this is going to be so exciting along with the other exciting things you've already talked about the sand drawing on main beach yes. by Jim Denivan or Denivan and Denivan that, yes. and that's all day Saturday November 9th and it will continue into November 10th but you'll you'll start out with him with his cadre of local high school students I guess and mm-hmm. they'll be shaping main beach sand folks so carrying yes. the theme of uh, art and nature. And he'll be working on it all day with what uh, we're not going to do any spoiler alerts, um, but he's got, we know Maine Beach, most of us. So he's going to be working with his crew and all day and it's going to go into the night. I don't know if we want to say what he'll do at nighttime.
3: Oh, sure. Let's, let's do it. Let's, uh, <laughs> well, everyone should come and see this. It will be a spectacle. Um, you know, the, the whole um, idea of this, this weekend is, as I mentioned, that it's a kind of a, a conference and a festival that celebrates um, the way nature has been such an inspiration to artists. And one of the big ways in contemporary art is land art, as it's called, with a capital L and a capital A, land art. Jim Danovan's a land artist, which means that he, he doesn't depict nature, He he actually transforms nature. So he takes, um, usually usually it's a beach or maybe salt flats or some, uh, he's worked on a frozen lake too. And he scores gigantic drawings into the surface that um, look great from surface level, but also um, they're they're often photographed and filmed from above. So they they almost look like Sometimes like, you know, mysterious, um, like those crop circles or something like that. They have a very, these geometrical designs that he does have an almost prehistoric look about them sometimes. Uh, Anyway, he's going to do this on on the beach right here in Laguna. And um, in the evening, uh, the whole thing will light up because he's going to place uh, solar lanterns around the whole design so that it, it continues from the the daytime into the into the night in this kind of illuminated form. So and the,
0: the tidal schedule is going to work with him on that in that case? Uh yeah, we've um we've arranged for the
3: tides to be uh to go in and out at just the right moments. Yes.
0: Okay. So and we could think of this as a reverse instead of rescue me, you're going to say come hither. It's Laguna Beach for goodness sake. Okay. And then that's that is Saturday in the, I guess, it starts. In, how early Saturday is it going to start? We can watch um, it. Well, for the before picture.
3: Yeah, I think he's going to he's going to start quite early in the morning, and he'll create the drawing by I think by midday. But um, then we'll be working in the afternoon to um, put the the lanterns out. I think. Okay. But certainly, certainly, it'll it'll look interesting all day. But it'll look totally spectacular at night when it's lit up. All
0: right, and then. Um, well, I'm moving along with the offerings that you've planned for this week. There's the panel discussion with artists uh, Tanya Aguiniga and uh, Michael Latz and Adam Silverman, uh, the aforementioned ceramicist. Mm-hmm. That's then going to be Saturday, essentially over the um, the noon hour from 11 to 12:30. That panel discussion is going on. I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. sort of go through this quickly. Then, on, uh, s- let's see. Also on Saturday. 5 to 7 p.m., there will be a reception and the keynote lecture presented by Kevin Starr, our L.A. Orange County regional historian, and he'll talk about how ideas of nature have helped shape California's history and identity, and what better time uh, with everybody's eyes focused on the 100th anniversary of Moholland's Owen Valley Water Projects for Kevin Starr to bring this up uh, at the museum in Laguna.
3: Yeah, we're, we're very proud to have um, landed uh, Kevin Starr as our keynote speaker. he really is the you know the real deal he 's a fantastic uh, historian and intellectual who has um, has published widely on the subject of california history there could be there 's no better person than never has been to talk about um, the, the part that uh, a sense of nature has played in in defining what what California is all about as a state you know he 's going to talk from the historical point of view about the development of um, the the identity of California and um, the way that um, someone like John Muir up in in Yosemite um, really kind of inspired people to come to California because of the the natural wonders to be seen here, but also about the the way that um, Californians have have been conscious of nature and and in recent years especially conscious of uh, environmental issues just as as part of their DNA as as it were. So um, it, nature is important to California. It's very important to Laguna Beach, and we're we're glad to be uh, homing in on that connection between art Abs- and nature.
0: Absolutely. And then on Sunday, you're offering a panel discussion with Jim Denman, We've mentioned his Mm -hmm. sand work, and that's on Sunday from 11 to 12.30. This could be a different form of worship service next Sunday. So he's uh, really one (laughs) cool Santa Cruz. UC Santa Cruz cat with a host of enterprises under his belt. So Mm -hmm. I can't imagine the many directions that he'll be taking the panel discussion Sunday morning, starting at 11. Mm -hmm. Did you want to... uh,
3: the other speaker's you know for these panels we've got a nice variety of people it's yes. not just artists for on the Saturday morning panel we have this um, marine biologist who works with artists he has a, an artist in residence at his lab at um, Scripps Oceanography Institute down in La Jolla. And um, on the Sunday morning, our other speakers with Jim Denovan are um, you know, there's a landscape architect, and there's this guy from the, the museum in um, Reno, Nevada, who's uh, runs uh, a program called Art and Environment, which is um, an, another so, somewhat sort of uh, related um, enterprise yes. to, the, to our, our own um, art and nature thing. So he's going to talk about the um, artists who've uh, who are ecologically minded, you know, who create works of art that are um, to do with um, saving the environment and preserving nature.
0: At the mouth of the environmentally, largely intact, but for a few little transgressions, the uh, the whole Laguna Canyon system. So it's all, mm-hmm. it's a, rather l- well-themed. And then, concluding the series of wonderful offerings is the family festival Sunday from 2 to 5 p.m. and these offerings they're right around the corner and if anyone accidentally misses this as I said it's it's there around there uh, the actual installations until after the new year celebration so everyone has plenty of opportunities to take in and so if some of these times and dates are flying fast and fiercely at you, you can look up on the web at lagunaartmuseum.org for more information. It's at 307 Cliff Drive in Laguna Beach. And I I'm, I'm, uh, I didn't know about this soon enough to uh, to uh, push some things around, but I'm going to try my best to get in on at least half of the action because I, I think it's so well thought out and it's terrific that you've considered so many different Media and artists and constituents to serve uh, in presenting all of these pieces for us, Malcolm Arnold. Thank you
3: very much. I appreciate that. Well,
0: thank you. We were just talking to Malcolm. Why did I say Malcolm? I was going to do that. Malcolm Orton. Malcolm Arnold is a cool composer, but Malcolm (laughs) Warner, executive director of Laguna Art Museum. Thank you for doing all this for us today.
3: You're very welcome.